Welcome to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Josh Brewer. This week on Profiles, we'll hear conversations with three filmmakers. These filmmakers came to the WFIU studios while visiting Bloomington as part of the Indiana University Cinemas Directed by Women series. In the second half of the show, we'll hear a conversation with two filmmakers, Jatavia Gary and Stephanie Santaj. Gary and Santaj are part of a collective of black women filmmakers called the New Negress Film Society. But first, WFIU's John Bailey talks with director Penelope Spheres. Welcome to Profiles on WFIU. I'm John Bailey. On Profiles, we talk with notable artists, scholars, and writers and get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is Penelope Spheres, a film director, writer, and producer who gave us the documentary trilogy, The Decline of Western Civilization, and a number of major studio feature films as well, including Wayne's World and Black Sheep. Much of her best-known work depicts young people whose lives are in some way extreme. Penelope Spiris, thank you for being here today. Oh, thank you very much for having me, John. I'd like to talk first about The Decline films, which you have said constitute maybe the better part of your legacy. Okay. You had been going to the clubs? in the late 70s, where punk music was being performed in L.A. Was there an aha moment for you when you realized, I have to document this on film? Mm, good question. Yes, I was indeed a part of the punk rock scene in the mid to late 70s. People always ask, well, how did you ever get in there and become so familiar with people? Well, the fact of the matter is, I was already familiar with them when I thought of doing the film. And... With regard to the aha moment, I think it was probably when I saw the germs perform at the Starwood, not sure exactly of the year, but I realized that it was a very unique movement in so many different ways and that somebody needed to document it, and I just felt inspired. What did you expect would come of the film? I didn't really have any expectations back then. I mean, I was uh, I had my own... Um, video company back then. I had just uh, come out of school and started a uh, music video production company called Rock and Reel. And I was making a meager living working for the record companies, just doing performance type videos. And um, I mean, I knew it was important to document it because nobody else was doing it. But it's not like I knew that 30 years later, that people would be so interested in it. You've said you feel prouder of these films than maybe anything else you've done. Why is that so? I do feel prouder of the Decline series than any of my other work. Well, I guess I could include Suburbia with that as well, though, because I feel, for me, that they did what I really wanted to do in life, which was to study human behavior. And, you know, music is also a great interest, but it was the music aspect was more an excuse or a platform to document the human behavior of young people at the time. You know, somebody referred to it as the documentation of alternative music in in the last couple decades of the 20th century. And I thought, well, that's a fine compliment, you know, because not everybody had a camera back then, and we don't really have a lot of documentation of that particular type of music back then. We have a lot of, of documentation of of disco and the kind of fade out of that um, hippie rock, but we didn't have a lot of documentation of punk rock and the street metal of the day. Disco lent itself to 
films yeah. about the trend, uh-huh. starting with Saturday Night Fever and on through to yeah. Can't Stop the Music. And punk did not lend itself to that. The no, at- not at all. The and- atmosphere in the clubs was very chaotic. Mm-hmm. How safe did you feel? inside those clubs as a visitor and as a filmmaker? Well, I kind of knew the rules of the room, you know, having been to many, many concerts before I started shooting. I knew what you could do and what you couldn't do. And I always took great care to do the right things. You know, I mean, the pit got pretty reckless and crazy sometimes, but I always shot one camera on the decline movies and I put myself on a platform with a tripod, so if anybody knocked the platform around, we nailed the tripod down so it wouldn't fall over. So I was relatively safe there, and then I put the poor cameraman with the handheld camera down in the pit, and he would say, like the first time Steve Conant was shooting, he said, you're going to have to get me a shark cage because I can't do this otherwise. He said, my camera's bouncing all over the place, and I'm not getting anything. And I said, no, Steve, you're getting a lot. And that's the way it should look. It should look crazy and reckless and insane because that's what the scene was like. So I didn't feel unsafe, you know. I had a tall boyfriend at the time who (laughs) seemed to care about me. (laughs) So he he was always watching my back. (laughs) A lot of the characters whom we follow, not just in the first Decline film but through the series – seem to be out of control in their lives or on the brink. How comfortable are you with that level of chaos? Well, there, is a, there was a great level of chaos, and I think one reason I was very attracted to it is because I was raised in chaos. You know, it, to me, it felt like home. I'm the um, oldest of four children. My father was murdered when I was seven, and so I was put in charge of taking care of the children. And my mother had... After my dad died, she had seven different husbands. So I had seven stepdads. And um, it was really chaotic. Often there were, you know, physical fights and blood and people going to the hospital with excuses of why it happened and stuff like that. So I wasn't afraid of the punk rock scene. I wasn't afraid to get in there because to me that was just daily life, you know. You were born in New Orleans, but your father owned a carnival. Mm Mm-hmm and traveled frequently with the family? Every week. Where was home for you? On a carnival. Yeah, that was the carnival. In the winter, you know, we would go, and they called it winter quarters, and they would go in down to Pensacola or some place like that that was warm and just kind of camp out while it was really cold. Most of the time it was the carnivals in the Midwest and the South. But whenever I was in school, I would, I would have to go to a different school every week. More chaos. <laughs> Do you have a lot of clear memories of those first years? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I have a lot of clear memories of the carnival. And after your father died, your mother remarried? Yeah, my mom remarried quite a few times after my dad passed away. She was actually kind of a very, very moral kind of person, you know, really um, not hugely religious, but she comes from coal miners in, in Kansas and Arkansas. That's where the families are from. And They're just really solid, sturdy people with good standards, you know. So she wouldn't want to ever, you know, have a boyfriend and not get married. Let's put it that way. So she kept getting married over and over again. What was constant for you growing up? Chaos. (laughs) Chaos was constant. 
So that's why, like, you know, as you were saying, it wasn't daunting for me to do these movies because that was just what I knew. And, you know, having seven stepfathers, I got used to being treated badly by men, so I did pretty well in the film business because it didn't bother me, (laughs) you know? That actually brings me to the second decline film, which focuses on um, <laughs> good transition. 80s heavy metal, um, many of the bands L.A.-based, some of them sober and in recovery, some of them not quite there, mm-hmm. many in hedonistic periods of their lives. Mm-hmm. I'd actually like to play right now a fairly famous clip of Chris Holmes, the guitarist for Wasp. Uh, he's floating in a lawn chair in a pool. His mother is seated poolside, looking on kind of with amusement, pouring vodka in his mouth and all over his face and talking about his alcoholism. Chris, do you yes, drink ma'am. very much? Pardon? Do you drink very much? Uh, yes, I do. I'm a full-blown alcoholic. Just when he's awake. <laughs> I, I drink too much. Here. Okay. Why do you drink that much? Because uh, I enjoy it. Do you think a rock and roll lifestyle turns you into an alcoholic? Yes, it does. How much of that do you drink a day? About five pints. A vodka? Yeah. Five quarts, pints, who cares? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a happy camper. <laughs> do you think that maybe um, this kind of, you know, rock and roll lifestyle is, is hard on you and maybe that's why you drink? Well, I'm a full-blown alcoholic. And uh, why I drink is because, look, what? What? Why do you drink, Chris? Uh, Because it makes me happy. Happy. Uh, I enjoy drinking. I just enjoy life. How compelled did you feel to, at times, take off your documentarian hat and intervene in the lives of these people who seem to be spiraling? Well, I don't think I ever really felt compelled to intervene, and I I don't feel guilty about that. I mean, when you look at the various players in these films, you'll see you can't tell who's going to live and die. You know, by that time in my life, I had lost a lot of friends to drug and alcohol. I could never tell who was going to go. I mean, Keith Richards is still alive. Chris Holmes is still alive. I'm still alive, (laughs) barely. You know, I always say God's in charge of life and death. We can't go, oh, that guy's going to die for sure. Yeah, sometimes it's pretty obvious, but you can't really say. So I never felt that it was my business to intervene, and I don't feel guilty about that. There were kids in decline three who passed away that I never thought would, ever. It's just so unpredictable. That Chris Holmes clip has been, I wouldn't say it's gone viral on the web, but it's been seen many times outside the context of Decline 2. People just hearing about it, searching it out on YouTube, watching it, uh, maybe kind of getting a laugh at how outrageous it is. Mm -hmm. How funny was the film to you at the time? It wasn't as funny to me, and we're not talking specifically about Chris Holmes. I'm assuming you're talking about the entire film wasn't as funny to me as it was to the producers. Um, the producers were John uh, Dayton and Valerie Ferris, who went on to direct Little Miss Sunshine. They're really, really great people. They really have a great take on life. They really have 
a fantastic sense of humor. I was more interested in the more serious side of, of music, as you could tell from the first decline. So I would always try to pick the more serious bands. That's why I struggled to get Megadeth to end the movie, and I won, so that's good. It was going to be Guns N' Roses, but that didn't work out. I love the other bands. They're just lighter and fluffier. I didn't think of it as funny. I thought of it as that that's just the way these people are right now. In 1987, these people are walking around up on Sunset Strip acting like this, and I am going to shoot it. I'm going to film it because people need to see this. The cast of characters in the second Decline film was quite different than the musicians in the first. You had some who had really broken out and had enjoyed major mainstream success. In Decline 2? Yeah. Aerosmith. Yeah, but they weren't performing. Right. The concept for the Decline movies is that we can use whoever we want to to speak with, but it's to to give unknown bands a platform and some exposure. I get gratification out of that. So the bands I pick for the movies are unknown, the ones that perform. Is that the common thread through mm-hmm. the three films? Yes. In mm-hmm. the third film, you focus heavily on teenagers in mm-hmm. the 90s punk culture who are trying to survive. Right, out on the street, homeless. But the, the common thread is... Unknown bands, because all those bands were relatively unknown at the time. I don't think any of them have gone on to achieve gigantic stardom, but as Keith Morris says in Decline 3, that's not really what he wanted anyway. So it's not a gratifying thing. So they're smart enough to know that, I think. They're just doing their thing. Mm -hmm. The people you follow through the films tend heavily to be male and in truth are not universally respectful of, of women. And in fact, during the second film, I recall you're saying that uh, your daughter was on the set, teenage daughter, uh, was nearby and ended up dating a member of Motley Crue. When you were making those films, how abrasive was that to you? It didn't bother me, you know, really, John, because I didn't focus on it. I didn't go, oh... I'm being treated badly because I'm a woman. I never said that, you know, and I actually use that phrase with regard mostly to the mainstream motion picture industry that I've dealt with. That's where I felt more like I was treated badly as a woman than with any rock and roll or decline shooting that I've done, you know. But I never focused on it either with the mainstream studio movies because, I don't know, if you focus on something really, really hard, then that's what you get. In retrospect, though, I do think I was treated badly, you know, because I'm a woman uh, by, by mainstream Hollywood. And I know so many other women who were and are. But as far as the rock and roll films that I've done, I didn't ever think that. But I know what you're saying. That the women, especially in part two, are treated very, very badly and spoke of very badly. The fleas and ticks of rock and roll. The girls kind of thought that was cute. And they bought into it and they did that. And groupies loved being groupies. And yes, my daughter dated Nikki Six and I could have killed him. (laughs) But it was like my rock and roll karma, you know. It's like, oh, Penelope, you want to live a life of rock and roll? Here's what you get. I get to have my daughter going out with Nikki Six. You know, great, thanks. She's 17, and he's going around telling people she's 15. Yeah, you know, just so he could be cooler. But you know the great thing? Life is so wonderful in so many ways. I think he's a father of two or three daughters now. 
So he's going to have to deal with what I dealt with. You know what I mean? It's okay. Three or four years before Decline 2, you were offered the opportunity to direct This Is Spinal Tap, and you turned it down. Well, let's just say this. I was talking with um, Harry Shearer and Chris Guest and this guy named David Javelin, and they were telling me their idea, and they gave me a few pieces of paper. It wasn't a script, and they said, this is the concept for you know this movie that's going to totally make fun of heavy metal. I read it, and I thought, you know, I don't think I'm going to be good at that. I don't think that I could make fun of it. But ironically, I kind of did in Decline too, inadvertently. So I think Rob Reiner did an awesome job on that. You know, I don't regret that I didn't do it. Did you enjoy This Is Spinal Tap when you saw it? Oh, yeah, I loved it. I love Fran Drescher. Yeah, I thought it was fantastic. Is it fair to say that between Decline 2 and Wayne's World, you sort of ended up making a This Is Spinal Tap of your own in some ways? I think the Decline 2 and Spinal Tap and Wayne's World all stand on their own. You know, they have similarities, but I mean, I got the job to do Wayne's World because I had done Decline 2 and also because I knew Lorne from years and years ago. Lorne Michaels. Yeah, Lorne Michaels. He had asked me to teach Albert Brooks how to make movies because he didn't know how. I'm like, well, I know how to make movies. Can I just do some some shorts on the show? And he's like, no, no, no. We have to have a man for that. <laughs> no, he didn't say that. But that's what, the, what it was. But I, I taught Albert how to, how to shoot, and I produced with Albert. How did you meet Lorne Michaels? See, it's so interesting in life how things happen without me trying. I was at UCLA, and there was a notice on the board that said, Need translator for Jimi Hendrix movie. Not translator, I should say transcription person. So I was extremely fast typist. So I thought I could do this job. So I called up this guy, Gary Weiss, and Gary said he and his friend John Head were working on a movie about Jimi Hendrix, and that's what it's called, Jimi Hendrix. It was right about when Jimi just died, I think. It was around 74, maybe 73. I did the transcription. They were really pleased. I became really good friends with those guys. And Lorne knew John. John knew Lorne. Let's put it that way. Lorne Michaels. And Lorne had just come from um, Toronto to visit California. And I actually remember Lorne sitting in my living room reading the morning paper, and I was making him an omelet, which he always says gives me credit for doing very well. <laughs> and he was reading the, the morning paper, and he goes, you know, I'm just thinking about maybe doing some kind of a live show you know, Saturday night and from New York or something. And that was, I'm not saying he thought of it in that room, but yeah, I knew him before he did the show. And he invited you out to New York to work on the program? Yeah, he did. Actually, Lauren's a good dude. He, he asked me to go to New York. And my daughter was only uh, three at the time, I think. And um, he asked me to go to New York. And I said, no, Lauren, I'm going to stay out here. And he goes, well, you stay out here. And then if I need anything done out here, I'll let you know. And I said, fine. And then uh, he said, I found this really funny guy, Albert Brooks. So he needs to make some shorts for the show. So can you produce them? And I did. What did Albert Brooks learn from you? How to make movies. (laughs) I taught Albert Brooks how to make movies. There you go. What did you learn from him? Oh, Good question, because it was a total even trade. I knew nothing about Hollywood. And 
Albert knew a lot because, you know, he was a Beverly Hills kid that knew all the stars and the actors of the time. And he was just raised in that milieu. And I was raised in a trailer park. (laughs) And he taught me how to navigate Hollywood. And I taught him how to technically make films. I didn't teach him how to be funny, mind you. He knew that. Albert's a genius comedian. And I don't mean to be taking too much credit. But he had not gone to film school, and and I think I helped him out quite a bit, and he helped me. So even even trade. And you ended up as a producer on his first feature film, mm-hmm. Real Life. Yes, um, I I produced um, well all the shorts on Saturday Night Live, and he got some money together, and then buddied up with uh, Paramount, and um, we did Real Life. He directed, I produced, but uh, that's when I decided I didn't want to be a producer anymore. Was that your first major feature film experience? No, my first fe- a major feature film experience was when I was in a Roger Corman movie as an actor. I was Shirley Animal's girlfriend in uh, this biker group. Actually, before that, I was the star of a movie at UCLA. This director back then made this awesome independent movie, and I was the star. And unfortunately... He got killed on a motorcycle accident right when the film was done. Alan Jacobson was his name. His parents put that film on a shelf and never let anybody see it. So I I thought that was a signal from God that I was not an actor. Hmm. Yeah. You were involved with another significant shelved film in the late 60s, -hmm. uh, Uncle Tom's Fairy Tales, Tales, Mm -hmm. um, the movie for homosexuals. What does that mean? I've never heard that before. That's that's the uh, that's what appeared after the colon in my research, but that's not the title. No, that's just some internet glitch. I have no idea what that means, but it was originally called Uncle Tom's Fairy Tales. What happened was when I was in film school, um, my daughter's father, Bobby Scheller, and I were walking across the street by Milnitz Hall, which is the film school uh, building, and Bobby goes, "Wow." That's Richard Pryor walking in front of us. He was wearing like a long brown leather coat and big hat. And I'm like, who's Richard Pryor? And he goes, the funniest man on the planet. So we stopped and talked to him. And we asked him what he was doing there. And he said he was looking for some film students to help him make a movie. And I went, well, you found them. And so I produced a movie that, that Richard directed and wrote. It was called Uncle Tom's Fairy Tales. About halfway through it. When we shot it, um, I was the producer, and I put everything together. Bobby shot camera sometimes. He recorded sound sometimes. Um, it was all kind of just, you know, guerrilla filmmaking. We got all the film together. I kind of worked every day in Richard's house with him to edit the film. So I spent a good solid two years with Richard Pryor, and I, had a, I got a good comedy ec- education from both him and from Albert Brooks. I'd like to move on and, and discuss Wayne's World. It was the first major studio picture with which you were involved as a director. Mm -hmm. How different was that experience from, say, the decline films as a director? What kind of education was it for you? Well, I had done, you know, the first decline in 79 and 80. I shot it. I did um, Suburbia after that and The Boys Next Door and Dude. Wayne's World was my seventh movie, but you're right in that it was my first studio movie. And the experience was quite different. When, you know, I had done my low-budget independent movies 
that I just mentioned, I generally had one person to answer to. For two of them, it was this very entertaining, uh, crazy dude named Sandy Howard. And then, of course, there was Roger Corman, you know, for Suburbia. But with a studio picture, you have like six people to answer to. And Who are those people? I had to answer to Lorne Michaels. and um, He was the executive producer? The producer. Mm-hmm. Karen Rosenfeld was the executive producer, I think. She was actually a studio exec as well, so maybe she wasn't. Karen Rosenfeld, uh, John Goldwyn. Um, then I had to answer to Bonnie and Terry Turner, who were the writers, brilliant writers, because that's the way TV works. TV works in that the writer is in charge or at least with the live TV show like Lauren's doing. you know, uh, The director is just the person that puts the people in the right place and gets the camera in the right place in TV. So I had to kind of make an adjustment because the director, per the Director's Guild, is the person who's in charge of all creative decisions. It was uh, an adjustment for me to deal with so many different people's input. And, of course, there was Mike's input and Dana's as well and Rob Lowe's. <laughs> Wayne's World was a surprise hit. Mm-hmm. It caught you by surprise? Oh, yes, definitely. I don't think any of us that were working on the show knew that it was going to do as well as it did. I don't think anybody at the studio, Paramount, knew that it was going to do that well. It wasn't me, you know. It was just a magical combination of a bunch of different chemistries, you know. I mean, perfectly placed, you know. It's like John Lennon isn't the Beatles. When the right people get together to do the right thing, Something magical happens. That happened with Wayne's World. And after Wayne's World, you found yourself doing a series of studio pictures. I didn't really want to do the studio pictures. I I should say, I did want to do studio pictures. I didn't want to do comedies. I had inadvertently been very well trained in comedy after watching, you know, comedy movies growing up as a kid and then having dealt with extensively with uh, Richard Pryor and Albert Brooks. And then again, uh, Lorne introduced me to Lily Tomlin. So I had some comedy chops, but had I had my choice in, in my career, I would have gone on to do other films like Suburbia and films that were more personal to me and things that had a, a more serious message. And, but I couldn't do that. See, that's, that's the woman in the industry part that gets me because I think men uh, have more leeway in that once they have a hit with something, they can do some other genre, but not, not us chicks here because it's like you did a comedy, it really did well, we're not going to take a chance. I mean, I went to Paramount right after I did Wayne's World because they were going to do a great script called Leap of Faith, which Steve Martin starred in. And I sat down with John Goldwyn and I said, please, John, please let me do this movie. I can do such a fantastic job with it. I was raised on a carnival. I know what a traveling circus is like because this was a traveling evangelist. Didn't get the job. And I thought, how could I make $185 million and then they won't give me a job? What would it take? It would take Paramount having to exercise an option on Chris Farley because he had done Tommy Boy, and he wanted to go to a different studio and do Cable Guy. And if they didn't exercise the option by Monday morning at 9 o'clock, they lost Chris Farley. So they called me up on Sunday, and they said, Penelope, will you do Black Sheep? Actually, they didn't even have a title. They go, will you do a film with Chris Farley? I said, I love Chris Farley, but what's the movie? Show me the script. We don't have a script, but it's going to be good. And I go, well, I love Chris, but I need to see a script before I can commit. Mm, We don't have a script. But it's Lorne, so... So that was your own leap of faith there. You signed on to the Lorne Michaels, Chris Farley project. 
I didn't know what to say, and I just was silent. Sherry Lansing and John Goldwyn were both on the phone, and I was totally silent. And she said, how about $2 million as a salary? And then I was really silent because that's a hard decision. I'm going to do a movie that I don't know what it is, but look at all that money. And I was so just quiet. And John goes, okay, (laughs) (laughs) 2.75. So I didn't want to do those kind of movies, but they kept offering me all this money. And I thought, well, if I can't do the movies I want to do, I might as well make the money. And so that's what I did. You ended up doing... Beverly Hillbillies, Little Rascals. Mm -hmm. You began directing more than 40 years ago. Rub it in. (laughs) (laughs) What has changed for you as a female director during that time? I think as a female director, what's changed is the fact that I've realized my gender was a factor in what happened in my career. But the other thing that's, that's really cool is... I think I've evolved to the point that I'm not defining myself by filmmaking. I'm defining myself by something deeper. I'm really proud of that. I have so many contemporaries now who are still banging their head against the wall, trying to get movies made the same way that they used to be made. You can't do that anymore. And I want to tell them, stop doing that. Just stop trying to do it the old way. It doesn't work. I mean, I just feel it's more important to evolve as a human being than it is a filmmaker. You've been a mother for 46 years? 45. Give me a break, (laughs) (laughs) Everything you accomplished in the first couple of decades of your film career, you did as a single mother. Yes. How did that factor affect your career choices? Well, people say to me, why do you have such a varied uh, scope of work? Why, Why are all the films so different? Because I took every job I could. You know, every job I could get, I would take it because I just needed to pay the rent and get some money for my daughter to eat and put clothes on and go to school. And I brought her with me everywhere because I had to, you know. I mean, I even locked her in an editing room one night and forgot her. And when I left at 6 in the morning, I'm like, oh, my God, my kid's locked in the building. And I had to call the fire department to get my daughter out, five years old. Here's the cool thing. Anna is the one that got the decline movies out. I wouldn't be sitting here if she hadn't done that. She's the one that said, Mom, you really have to do this. People really, really want to see them. As a result of that, it's sort of been a, a reinterest in my career. And I never expected this at this age that people would care. You know, I was kind of signed off. Okay, bye, y'all. <laughs> you know, but my daughter got the box sets out. So I have to be thankful for that. What's next for you? What would you like to work on? You mean movie wise? Yeah, or, or otherwise. I love building houses. Yes, I've built quite a few. I've got one now I need to work on. I love that. It's very creative. I would do a documentary about the mental health system in the United States if I could. But because of privacy issues, it's so difficult. And uh, what else? We're working on Decline 4 just because people really, really want it. And plus my daughter, Anna Fox, is working on a movie about the carnival that I was uh, born on. And I think it's going to be a great movie. I'm the producer. (laughs) She's the director. I've been speaking today with Penelope Spheris, film director, writer, producer. Thank you very much for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me. I love Indiana. (laughs) This is an amazing place. (laughs) This is John Bailey for Profiles. 
That was WFIU's John Bailey speaking with filmmaker Penelope Spheres. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Josh Brewer. This week, we're listening to conversations with three filmmakers who came to the WFIU studios while visiting Bloomington as part of the Indiana University Cinema's Directed by Women series. Jatavia Gary and Stephanie Santaj are part of a collective of black women filmmakers called the New Negress Film Society. Gary is a Brooklyn-based filmmaker who confronts notions of representation and identity. The work of Stephanie Santaj focuses on immigration, women, and community. WFIU's Deshaun Tyree spoke with both filmmakers earlier this year. All right, so we're here with you two. I want you to tell me who you are and, and why you're here. Hi, I'm Jatavia Gary. I'm a Brooklyn-based filmmaker. Um, we are here for the Directed by Women's Conference. Myself and Stephanie are members of the New Negress Film Society, and we will be screening a number of our films, and we are in discussion with a number of people here on campus, including Terry Francis and Michael Martin of the Black Film Center Archives. I'm the director of Cakes to Kill a No Homo and An Ecstatic Experience. That's that wonderful. Great. Yeah. I'm Stephanie Santange. I'm a filmmaker and I'm here for the Directed by Woman event representing New Negress Film Society. And I'm the director of seventh grade and La Tierra de los Adiosos. Okay. And so where are you from again? I'm from New York. New York. Brooklyn and The Bronx. Oh, the Bronx. I'm originally from Dallas, Texas. Dallas, but I've Texas. lived in Brooklyn for about thirteen years. So can you tell me more about the New Negress? This this whole movement. Tell me more about that. <laughs> okay, well, the, yeah. the New Negress Film Society is a collective of black women filmmakers. Mm-hmm. And we're black women filmmakers that are womenist in our philosophy. And also we, you know, we are radical political thinkers. Radical political thinkers. So yeah. what's the difference between feminist and womanist? Well, f- mainstream feminism is largely a white um, woman's movement, and so womanist um, is a more specific kind of movement that centralizes black women uh, in their lived experiences, or black uh, f- women-identified LGBTQ people as well. Um, so uh, that is a more specific uh, philosophy and a more specific way of thinking about politics and centering yourself in society. So a black woman's experience is, I feel like the womanist movement came about because they were, they were marginalized in the mainstream feminist movement. And so they decided to, you know, put out their own ideas and their own objectives that were specific to their realities. So what got, what got you guys in, involved in the society, in the nigger society? Well, me, I am a recent member. Mm-hmm. I was friend of Jatavi. I met her at a screening, actually, both of our shorts that are playing here are um, screened at another film festival called New Voices in Black Cinema. Mm -hmm. And so we met there, we connected, we were friends, and then just a few months later, Tatavi asked me if I wanted to join Unigrest Film Society, and I was thrilled, yeah. I said yes immediately. Absolutely. Myself and another member, her name is Kumi James, uh, she reached out to me initially in 2013. We became friends, and we began to talk about our shared experiences in graduate school and how they were oftentimes kind of destabilizing because we were either one of very few or the only black female or the only black woman in the program. Uh, and that, you know, created a number of challenges. And so um, she 
was finishing up at Columbia. She was getting an MFA at Columbia. And she had this thesis film that she wanted to screen. So she reached out to me about possibly screening some of my work as well. Wow. So we organized a screening event that took place in the summer of 2013 that included works by filmmakers like Nikki Atujusu, Francis Podomo, Nevlin Naji, myself, and Kumi James. And where's this at again? I'm sorry. This all happened in Brooklyn, New York. Um, so we, t- we had a screening called I'm a Negress of Noteworthy Talent, which is kind of a nod to the fine fine artist Kara Walker who had an exhibit of the same name mm-hmm. uh, and then after that it was such an overwhelming like positive experience we decided to collectivize uh, we began to think about ways in which we could sustain that uh, and continue to have a platform for our work and the works of others uh, other black women filmmakers that's wonderful I like that great so um, can you tell me about your films then I want to talk about your films I've seen the seventh grade I I watched The Cakes to Killer. Uh, very interesting. I like both of them, actually. And uh, I thought it was very explicit. It was catchy. I like the uh, the choreography uh, with the guys in the back dancing. And yeah. then the edits were just great. So, I mean, it was it was definitely alluring. I liked it. Yeah. But um, I have a lot of ambivalent feelings about it. Yeah, I want people <laughs> to be torn. You know, I think that's really interesting that you say you kind of have these dual feelings. Mm-hmm. Cakes is such an amazing performer, and I... I came across this guy on Tumblr. I go down these like Tumblr rabbit mm-hmm. holes where you're clicking and clicking and clicking. And I saw this video that he was in. And so I was immediately taken by mm-hmm. his performance skills mm-hmm. and the fact that he was performing both masculinity and femininity at the same, same time. time. Right. He was, you know, rapping in that very hardcore New York gritty style. But he was talking about, you know, homoeroticism, gay sex. And I thought, wow, this is there's something here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I began to reach out to him. And we, I invited him to my school because that's where I was at at the time. I was a student at SVA, School of Visual Arts in New York. Yeah, we j- I just interviewed him, and it turned out to be this really great project, literally the first project that I was, you know, really proud of because I've done a number of little small films in undergrad and grad school. But this was, like, the first thing that I was like, oh, this is actually good. This, this is, is very good, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, Kicks the Killer No Homo is an interesting film and... Yeah, I'm hoping to release it online very soon. And your your film is is, is involving sexuality as well, uh, on the heterosexual tip. <laughs> Can we give a synopsis about that? We talk a little bit more about that. Okay, seventh grade is yeah. about it's a coming of age story mm-hmm. yeah, about seventh grade girls and sex and dealing with sex for the first time in their lives, right? In a very personal and a very direct way. That period, that time, you know, seventh and eighth grade is very crucial for people that's where mm-hmm. a lot of people lose their virginity and do things they're exploring things and mm-hmm. just to have that look into the, the the female side i have sisters i have four sisters but Ooh. i never knew that was going on so to have that look you know that fly on the wall type of thing it was it was pretty good to see that and then at the very end you kind of alluded to uh like a i'm gonna hold you down sister no matter what mm-hmm. like she took she took the, the blame off of her it was that ama- solidarity it was yeah, yeah it was amazing it was exactly solidarity it was amazing I think with girls coming of age, there's not a lot of stories out there when it comes to the female perspective. Because the female perspective is, it can be darker, I guess, in the male perspective. It's always like, for men, it's like they become interested in sex. Mm -hmm. But for women, it's, they're suddenly sexual objects, right? Mm -hmm. Suddenly their bodies become sexually desired, Mm -hmm. you know? And then when you're getting all these messages that sex isn't right, sex is wrong, especially for a woman to engage in, but then you're being sexually solicited and you also have sexual feelings yourself, 
it's a very confusing time for women and can be very destructive for their self-esteem. So I wanted to capture that. I wanted to, I guess it's like a fantasy of mine, like to see a woman who is being bombarded with these horrible rules that she wasn't aware of just a year prior, two years prior, that, and suddenly you're just sort of thrown into this and rejects it and resists against it and then defends her friend. <laughs> it to me, it, I mean, it was it was great. I mean, I said that before, but I really liked it. It was like a Wonder Years. It was mm. like the the female black version of Wonder Years. Like it needs to be a series. Like that needs to be talked about so that we have like you know this this dialogue between family members and women going through puberty. Like it, it's kind of you know risque or, or or taboo to even talk about these things. We have to get it out of the dark. You know what I mean? So yeah, I think that film does that and yeah. can continue to do that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, and a lot of the films I think that that do deal, the few films that deal with mm-hmm. with women and their first sexual encounters or what have you, they're very um, judgmental. Mm-hmm. Like it becomes like this after-school special, this like warning against, you know, like temptation or whatever, mm-hmm. like warning against a woman like engaging. It becomes, the consequences are always really dire. So it was important for me to to do a film that was more realistic because it's like a lot of women engage in sex like in middle school or if not in high school and not not everyone gets pregnant not everyone gets an std mm-hmm. it can be something as simple as just like your reputation or what have you mm-hmm. is damaged or nothing can happen so it was important for me not to like create this like extreme example this like or whatever dark warning against sex that a lot of these films do and not judge the characters for what they're doing because I don't think it's wrong I think it's completely natural and it's not our response is not to be to a young girl don't have sex mm-hmm. if you have sex this is this is going to happen whatever our response should be how do you protect yourself how do you stay mm-hmm. safe you know but mm-hmm. not to tell them the thing that their body wants them to do is wrong yeah the story didn't seem contrived to me it just seemed to come so authentically and like came out of realism even with your cinematography like you had like the I think it was handheld shots that was used a lot and it just made me feel like I was just there and they didn't know it out you know I was I was in the scene so I don't know that that authenticity is is needed for sure and you're talking about like bringing awareness to safe sex I think uh Cakes was alluding to that too he in did. a short trailer of the of the movie. Yeah, there's um yeah, it's that trailer that's is from a scene in which he was talking about well look, you know, if we had more education about sex, particularly gay sex or these types of sex that we find to be taboo, um, then we wouldn't have a lot of these issues that spring forth from ignorance, right? Mm-hmm. So if we were educating our kids about how to protect themselves instead of, you know, this sort of abstinence-only type of education, right. then we wouldn't have a lot of the, you know, these really kind of terrifying statistics regarding STDs or statistics regarding, you know, unwanted teenage pregnancies. You know, so we have to meet these things head on and not you know, kind of cloak them in the shadow because they get distorted in the shadows, Yeah. you know, so shine the light on them. And by doing it through art, I think that's really, um, it's it's a little bit more impactful than, say, you know, a lecture or something. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, especially in this day and age. People, that are, like kids, they don't want to be <laughs> lectured to. They want to yeah. be entertained. Right. <laughs> yeah, okay. And he, like, like I said, his music was definitely entertaining and, and the same with your film. Like these are things that can definitely capture people and then get the message out without actually writing it on the chalkboard. Mm. Say preaching, you know, yeah, yeah, preaching, and <laughs> and that's what we get boxed into when we try to give a message. Sometimes, so if you have like a a mission statement for yourselves, do you or do you have that? We we've organized ourselves around you know these very womanist kind of radical 
political and social uh, principles and ideologies. Mm -hmm. Um, And we uphold, highlight, spotlight, exhibit, and create works um, by black women that center black women and center the nuances of black life. For me, mm-hmm. when I make a film, mm-hmm. I'm very, very. Um, I'm always thinking about who am I talking to Absolutely. and what am I saying. And I'm usually talking to um, specifically Black people, although that does not stop the wider audiences from having an entry mm-hmm. point into the work. Mm-hmm. Um, but who am I talking to specifically? I'm usually talking to you know a very intimate Black community because I'm talking about very intimate Black things. Mm-hmm. However, being very specific is universal. Mm-hmm. Um, so. It's not an exclusive art form or attempt, um, but it is a very specific dialogue that I am having uh, with the audience. Absolutely. When you look at who's going to the movies and who's spending these dollars, African-Americans are spending Mm -hmm. these dollars and going to the movies. But when it comes to, I would say, um, non-mainstream films, I don't know if they're the main supporters of, of that type of work. And so for you to... You know, have that be your niche. It seems that the economics of that might be very challenging. Uh, Could you tell me more about that? Like getting those films funded, and how do you carve out that space? Like that's (laughs) that's a that's a yeah, that's a great question. These are excellent questions. Wow. Thank you. I do think that Black people can support indie film if they're marketed to Mm -hmm. properly. You know, Dear White People is an indie film, and Dear White People is funded and supported by Black people. Mm -hmm. So. I do think that when you when the story comes that black people connect to and when they are marketed to properly like social media now like they and have Twitter, to know about it. Yeah, they have to know about it. Mm-hmm. I think that in the past marketing has been very like top down. It's like if the studio isn't involved, then there's no way that you can know about it, right? But right. now with social media, with Twitter, with Facebook and everything, we can take that responsibility. We can take that onus on ourselves and we can market directly to black people i mean yeah you have to have a story that's more sensational i would say that's able to be you know tweeted in 140 characters and capture people's attention so that's that's challenging because that's part of why dear white people did so well because it was so incendiary that incendiary the um the trailer and everything but and even the title dear white people right (laughs) so i don't want to like not consider that but i will say that i do think it's possible um, for an indie film to do well, and she's got to have it. Was right. an indie black film that did very well that black people support him. Spike, black people supported Spike Lee, all his films. I think it's possible. I think it's it's maybe it's rare, but I do think it's possible. Yeah, I definitely think there's like an uphill battle, but I wouldn't count us out. Yeah, and even think of Terrence, right? The yeah, oversimplification of her beauty. I think with social media. Uh, and these kind of vast interconnected networks that we have, it changes the landscape, right? right? Not just with marketing, but with distribution as well. And with funding, the initial funding or the um, the funding while you're in the process of making the film. If you can begin to kind of tap into that potential audience, mm-hmm. audience at the beginning, then, you know, they can stay with you throughout the process of your film, throughout the life of your film. Yeah, and be invested in right. it and feel like they have that. And we've seen these kind of stage. case studies, right? Yeah. Oh, okay. It we've depends it. on what you want out of yourself and out of your career. Like, if you want to be making the next Marvel movie right. and make $5 million per movie or what have you, okay, maybe more. <laughs> if you want to make millions of dollars per movie, then, yeah, you probably shouldn't be making indie 
black film. But if you want to make movies that speak to you and speak mm-hmm. to, I think Sam Greenlee said this, that speak to mm-hmm. the black community, speak to the, then you have to sacrifice that million dollar paycheck. Right. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean you're going to be poor. That doesn't mean you're going to be starving. You're just right. not going to be in Hollywood. And but I do think and you who, can still... And not everyone wants to be in Hollywood. No. Some of us, that's not even on our radar. Some of us, it's just really about making that next film and getting it out and making well, you, sure it's resonating with somebody. You mentioned, and as we all are and everything, like sustainability, you mm-hmm. know, and, and how do you obtain that? Because that's really what I feel like most artists want. You know, they just want to be able to sustain themselves enough to make art. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And film is an expensive medium. You know what I right. mean? So it's mm-hmm. it takes a little bit more to do so. And, you know, just carving that space out in my, you know, interactions with my audience members who are most times black, it it's hard to get them to, like, to, to spend the money. If it's, it's, it's like, if it's not stamped with the uh, universal stamp or whatever, it's like, I don't believe in it. Right. You know what I mean? Like, right. I, and that's the work that we have to do as black people to understand, like, oh, if we can't complain about Exodus, right? Mm-hmm. And the fact that all of the Egyptians were non-black, except for the slaves. Right. We can't complain about those sorts of films and their, you know, really distorted representations if we are not supporting the artists that are coming from our communities and who are making films for us that are speaking directly to us. Okay, well, not to play, like, you know, devil's advocate. Because the devil don't need no advocates. <laughs> you talking about you know that grassroots funding and having people being invested from the beginning of the film i think one of my favorite directors uh spike lee had um uh, the sweet blood of jesus right and that kickstarter. was yeah that how do you think that went over that didn't to, what? To it me, was a successful kickstarter he, he, he raised people, over a million dollars he raised the money no doubt but his brand i feel like has been kind of a uh, diminished it's been it's been shot at that's for sure he's uh, he has his own money but he's asking for money for making films what do you feel about that? Not Talk everything needs a response. There are gonna, there's going to be people <laughs> who are going to come for you. Yeah. You're right. I saw this when mm-hmm. people when people were like, "Whoa, Spike Lee is on right. Kickstarter, kicks, you know, asking for about? money." But it's like I think that is the he's illustrating to you how real it is in Hollywood that even he, Spike Lee, Academy Award nominated, 20 years in the game. It's going to sometimes going to have to come and get back indie with it. And I didn't mm. feel no type of way about Spike doing that. Why? Because he started off like that. Yeah, I think that people who are in, in, in the industry don't really understand how much it is to make a film. Right. Oh. So they say, Spike Lee, oh. you're rich. Right. But it's like not, he's, not everyone has $2 million. It's like, oh, yeah, let me just like put in this film. You know, it's it's a lot more money than people imagine. So... I don't. I, I think that's why they were criticizing him because I just. I don't think they just understand. Yeah. How much money it takes to make a film. This is a question I have actually for both of you to answer because I get into these these arguments with some of my friends and they're like, uh, if you don't have the red, you know, uh, you're not doing anything. Yeah. Nah. <laughs> but the red camera doesn't make a filmmaker. You we know what I mean? Like you were that. saying, if we start with the narrative. It's not all about the spectacle and all the extra yeah. stuff. So, what do you shoot with? How like how? Because y'all y'all it looks great. <laughs> so I mean. And if you are shooting with the red, some funds have, like, you had to have come some up with transactions that. transactions Yeah, happening. like, what, what's going on there? Tell <laughs> yeah. me. Seventh grade was start on the 5D, the Canon 5D. No way. That was oh, beautiful. Yeah. It's gorgeous. It was beautiful. Thank you. I agree with the, the that whole, what you were saying about if you're not shooting on the red, then you're not making a film. is total nonsense. It's just total nonsense. Yeah, the audiences don't care. There's plenty know. of films that were not shot on the most sophisticated cameras. Like, now they have this film, Tangerine, that was shot on the iPhone, that went to Sundance, and okay. now it's in theaters, that's been, like, you know, 
everyone's been buzzing about it. Even more mainstream Hollywood films like 28 Days Later or Blair Witch Project. Right. I mean, yeah, they're like horror gritty, but audiences don't care. They just don't care. Filmmakers care. But audiences right. don't really care about the quality as much about the quality of the footage. So, yeah, if you get the red, great. It, it does look better or what have you. But I think you can still make a beautiful and moving so film. So you don't see that as, a, as another barrier to entry into the industry. Because you said you were shooting on 16 millimeter. I mean, yeah, there's all sorts of things. EX1 from back in the day, the Sony EX1. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to say it's not a barrier. I think that you can still make a moving story that people will connect to without having a fancy camera. But I will say that people do take you more seriously when you do have a fancy camera. So. I don't know. But then you can also make a really terrible story with the Red Epic Dragon. You know, this, <laughs> this type of stuff happens all the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I just don't think it should be, you know, it shouldn't make or break what you were about to do. If you can't get your hands on a red, you should still make your film. Go get a 7D. You know what I'm saying? Don't. It, it shouldn't be a barrier that stops you from moving forward with your ultimate goal. It's just like now that they have it, it's just like another level of, you know, expertise I mean, it's beautiful. almost. Yeah, it looks great. It's you know beautiful. So we're it's not knocking like, it, yeah. Well, the red, yeah. I mean, but we're living in a very, t- we're all blessed to be young filmmakers in this oh, yeah. time right now. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of filmmakers like to complain about how democratized it is, like, oh, it's so saturated with bad films or whatever. But it's like, no, it's now it's an opportunity for people who couldn't make films before to make films. Way easier. So, way way cheaper. easier. Yeah. And the good stuff rises to the top. Absolutely. So I think it's great. So um, yeah, you, you got a, um, a documentary that you won. Can you tell me more about that? La Tierra? Yeah. Okay, La Tierra de los Adiosis. Yes. It's called It's a Land of the Goodbyes in um, English. It is about a town in Mexico where 50% of the residents have migrated to the U.S. So it's a town that's filled with mostly women, children, and elderly. And it's sort of like a coming of age for the men in the town. Like once they graduate middle school, they migrate to the U.S. and they go to like very specific areas. Like right now they're all in Richmond and then they work construction jobs or what have you Mm -hmm. and send money back home. But it's about the town, mostly. It's It centers on the women who are left behind and have to see their sons leave or what have you. At age 14, they're leaving. Yeah. I've seen the guy, he said, to work, and it was just, like, so profound when he said it. Th- that's Yvonne. Yeah, Yvonne. He's, he was saying in that, he was saying his dream is just to work. Like yeah. Like, he just that, wants a job. That's profound that he's just that's that crazy. age, and that's all he can dream about. I, when I was that age, I wanted to be a basketball player, you know, so many other things. and Yeah, Yvonne is interesting because when we first met him, he was a lot more positive and optimistic. And then as the months went by, he just became more like disillusioned because he really wanted to go to college and he couldn't. Like his family just can't afford it. And so he, was, he ended up going to work at the border on a factory with his brother that was working there, that cell phone factory. I didn't ask this before, but like, who are your influences like for film? Who are your who who influenced you guys? So many. Yeah. Give me top three. Oh my god. And like briefly, like why? Like, oh, this person because of this. This person. William Greaves. Mm-hmm. He's a doc filmmaker. He's a really prolific documentary documentarian, a black man who started off as an actor, which is the same as myself, but transitioned into filmmaking. A super prolific. And then, of course, you know, everyone loves Spike. Spike is probably the reason why we're all kind of doing this, particularly our generation. You know, we were born on, raised on Spike. 
He has a very distinct style. So we were talking about Ava DuVernay and how she, you know, we need more of them. So she had a film about, no, what is it called? Middle no, of Nowhere. Middle of Nowhere. That's indie, right? Yeah. So then the next year, she's doing Selma. So it's like, do I jump in and, and let the, the, you know, the big production companies have influence and say on how my film should go? Or do I stay back and, you know, play the guerrilla style? Or kind of... Yeah, you may be, you're probably compromising your creativity and your whatever, but you're getting money and you're yeah. getting, like, exposure and you... And, the whole point is to be able to do another film, mm-hmm. right? To continue making work. So whatever aids in that, as long as you're not completely betraying yourself or betraying your, your convictions, exactly, yeah. then do it. I mean, I don't know. And I don't you think... can use that money that you make, right, to funnel into those passion projects that you're very, very, you know, serious about, very tied to emotionally and philosophically. So yeah, we we exist and operate within a capitalist context. We can't remove ourselves from that. You know, I can be socialist all I want, but I'm still having to go out and work, right? So go out, get your money, funnel it back into what you're doing, what you're what you're very serious about, what you love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, how do I end this? I don't know. Oh, this Thank is it. Thank you so We're much. Done. It was yeah. great. I learned a lot. Thank this you. This has been a pleasure learning about your films. I'm interested to come watch your films again and hear what you guys have to say with uh, Terry Francis because she's... The bomb.com. The bomb.com. <laughs> and so are you guys. So I appreciate you bombing through. <laughs> Thank you so much for having us. Thank this you very fun. much. That was WFIU's Deshaun Tyree speaking with filmmakers Jatavia Gary and Stephanie Santanj. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812 855 1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. James Gray is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. Profiles.